Good morning. So we're in Jonah chapter one. I get to handle chapter one. And then next week, Johnny Lopez is going to do chapter two. It's been really fun to be on the phone with Johnny and kind of working through some of the doctrines for the next few weeks. Uh, Paul Hooks is going to be chapter three and then wrap up with Elliot Hooks for chapter four. So let's, if you have your Bibles open, let's look at Jonah. We'll read the, go ahead and stand. We'll read the first few verses of the book of Jonah chapter one. Chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid. Every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. Verse 6, so the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, ton of questions. Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for uh, your word in Jonah, and we see ourselves in it, God. There are times when you tell us to go a certain way, a certain assignment, and we end up going in the opposite direction. Be gracious to us, Lord, just like your word of Jonah, and Father, use your word this morning to gently nudge us or to strongly encourage us or to move us into the area that you want us to be where we are aligned with the plan that you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we were at Kulon Park a few weeks ago, and uh, um, you know I'm I'm a grandparent now, so I'm I'm sort of enjoying watching other people deal with their toddlers. I don't know if that's is that bad or is that cruel, but you know <laughs> when they're your toddlers, it's a little bit different. But I'm sort of enjoying this. So we're at Kulon Park, and this toddler just makes a beeline opposite direction of where mom wants him to go. And I'm walking with actually with one of my grandkids and I'm watching. Everybody's sort of watching, right? Because the kid makes a beeline and the mom's chasing him and the boy's running. And he's smiling. She's sort of smiling. Everybody thinks it's cute. Of course, it's way cuter again when it's not your kid. But it's cute because toddlers, I mean, that's what they do. You know, they learn how to walk. And they learn how to say no. And in their heads, they are thinking, I'm going to take over the world. <laughs> I, I am going, if I keep this up, One of these days, my parents are going to break, and I'm going to be in charge of this whole family here. And it's cute. Today, we're looking at Jonah. Jonah goes in the opposite direction that God wants him to go, and it's not as cute. When we do it as adults, it's not as cute. So let's look at, we're going to deal with chapter one today, but let's look at all four chapters to kind of get a context. Chapter one, Jonah running from God. Um, I love the way Greg Laurie handled it because he said, chapter one, God gives Jonah a second chance. It's really the wind and the storm and the great fish. It is God's grace giving Jonah a second chance. Number two, or chapter two, Jonah prays to God. 
you know, he's under duress. He's in the fish, in the belly of the great fish. And there's a little bit of suspicion about really where Jonah's heart is at with the Lord. It's hard to tell because he's like, like us, he's complicated. Chapter three, great chapter. Jonah finally goes, preaches in Nineveh. And yet his whole sermon is eight words. Now, those of us that prepare messages, um, I think of Kevin and all the faithful work day after day to prepare messages. You know, an eight-word message doesn't, didn't seem like it took Jonah a whole lot of work. Here's his message. <laughs> Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days, Nineveh, you're out of here. I mean, that's his, that is his, that's his best message for the, for the city of Nineveh. And then what happens... I guess, I guess when I'm looking at that, I'm thinking about toddlers again. I'm thinking about grandkids. Excuse me for thinking of grandkids, but like we taught our grandkids or we taught our children when they were toddlers, you need to say, okay, daddy, or okay, mommy. And it wasn't like we wanted to hear that. We just wanted to know they understood because we never wanted to discipline in any way where we didn't know they understood. So sometimes they would say, okay, mommy, but a lot of times they sort of grit their teeth Parents, you know, I'm, you know where I'm going with this, right? They grit their teeth, and they get that look on their face, and they go, okay, Daddy. And they're obeying, but they're obeying with a bad attitude. And basically, I think that's kind of where we find Jonah. But the Ninevite city, the king, and everybody in the city, chapter 3 is such a cool chapter. Almost the whole city repents and gets saved. And, and really, it's a clear example that God uses us despite ourselves. I think of Paul when he was talking about the gospel was being preached for wrong motives in Philippians 1.18. He said, man, I praise God that the gospel is preached, even though it was preached for the wrong motives. So chapter 4, chapter 1, uh, Jonah running from God. Chapter 2, Jonah prays to God. Chapter 3, Jonah preaches for God. Chapter 4, Jonah's mad at God. Now, I think most of us would like to see chapter 4 end kind of on a happy note, like Think in your mind, there's a lot, I'm going to ask your forgiveness before I begin with all the animated movie illustrations because of all the grandkid thoughts in my mind, but think of The Little Mermaid, the end of the movie, where everybody's dancing and singing under the sea. I would love to see Jonah end with, the Ninevites are forgiven, and Jonah loves the Ninevites, and the sailors are there, and the great whale is there, and they're all happy. Jonah ends on a really unfulfilling, unfulfilling note. Jonah's more angry at the end. And his anger is so filled with hatred for the Ninevite people. And his main issue is God doesn't hate the same people that he hates. And it ends in this tough play. And I think there's a, there's a degree of that when we read it, it's unfinished. And maybe it asks the question of us, how are we dealing with loving our enemies? How are we dealing with obeying God and going where he wants us to go? So let's dive into chapter 1 and verse 1, and we'll work our way through chapter 1 of Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Who is this guy? Like, how many verses in the Bible talk about him? Not a whole lot. So in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 14, 25, we're given the specifics that he was a prophet, that was his job, that he spoke to a certain, he prophesied under a certain kingdom, under a certain year. And as I've been preparing this message over the last few weeks, the thing I just keep coming back to is the whole idea of a prophet. Um, you know, the prophet was to speak forth the word of God even when there was opposition, when the king was against it, the people were against it, the culture was against it. And it's kind of like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 8. Isaiah got it. 
Isaiah 6, 8 says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, "Then I said, speaking of Isaiah, Here I am, send me. That's the idea of a prophet, willing to speak forth the word of God in the face of adversity. I mean, think of another, sorry, another animated film illustration with my grandkids. Think of uh, the claw in Toy Story when the claw is coming down and all the little toys are like, pick me. They all want to get picked for the mission. The, the, the prophet was supposed to be, as soon as he got given his assignment, pick me. I will go. I will go pro- proclaim the word of God. In verse 2, we see, uh, arise, go to Nineveh. Let me see. First one says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Think of Nineveh. Think of the largest city in, in, in whatever country you're in. If, maybe New York. I think Tokyo is now the largest city with 37 million people. Nineveh was the largest city in the world for 50 years at that time. So think of this giant city, probably over a half million people, located today in Iraq. If you go to Mosul, I think you'll see parts of it that still have the name of, of Nineveh on part of the city of Mosul. So the Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the empire that eventually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And we think of Assyrians, think of Attila the Hun. Think of the most barbarous, barbaric enemy uh, military force who used what was common in olden times, scare people so bad by the torturous things they did to people that they would just give up before they even got into your city. So a few of them, I don't want to go into a lot of them, but a few things just to kind of get the barbaric nature of the Assyrians. They would stake people out on the ground and then skin them alive. Or sometimes they would reach into the mouth of a person that was alive and pull their tongue out by its roots. And, and this was, I, I don't like to be so graphic, but this is the people group. When you think of Assyrians, think barbaric. So it's possible because in Kings, which is the only verse we see in the Old Testament about Noah or about Jonah, It's possible he lived in the northern part of of Israel. It's possible that he had experienced or seen or heard of some of this horrific stuff that was happening by the Assyrians. Um, The book does not tell us why Jonah hates the Assyrians. Okay, we, we, we see this hatred that fills his heart to such a degree that he wants to get away from the presence of the Lord. He's so filled with hatred. But it doesn't tell us why. My best guess, and I think many would agree, is that Imagine someone from uh, Jewish descent in the United States in the 1940s being told they were being sent to Berlin during the Nazi uh, era to witness in Berlin to preach a message of salvation for the Germans. That, I think, is the best way to understand kind of putting together how this story fits together for Jonah. And it says, their wickedness has come up before me. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I know that God sees everything. But there are times when you can sort of turn that switch in your brain and think that he doesn't. The wickedness of the city came up before God because nothing is hidden before God. Verse 3, then Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Um, We don't know exactly where Tarshish is. It's not, even on the old, most of the commentaries don't know exactly. All they know is that it was the farthest place in the opposite direction that you could go. The Phoenician sailors and the Phoenician boats were the ones who would go all the way across the Mediterranean, all the way out towards Spain, and to then the end of the world. And that's the boat that Jonah decides to go, the absolute farthest he can get away from going where God wants him to go. 
to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Um, I can remember a time in my life where I really wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. I, I was not a believer. I had lived in a bunch of, in a party house in North Seattle in the U District during the punk rock era, and we lived to party. And one time my roommate started talking to me about the book of Revelation. I don't even know where that came from because it wasn't part of, I don't think it was part of the song that we were singing at that time, but he started talking about Revelation. I just wanted out of there. So I went to go see Ryan, who I'd lived in the fraternity with, to go continue a party and get away from this conversation, the presence of the Lord. I got to Ryan's house. He'd gotten saved. There's a big Bible by his bed, and I left again. I wanted away from the presence of the Lord until the Lord later date worked in my heart. But you know, as believers, sometimes... I want to get away from the presence of the Lord. Sometimes we're involved in sin. And sometimes we are not really wanting to read the scriptures. Sometimes we really don't want to be sitting under the teaching of the word. And uh, I think Psalms 139 is pretty much uh, appropriate for here. Psalms 139.7 says, Where can I go from your spirit? You know, when we're at that point where we are um, wanting to flee from the presence of the Lord, but we're believers, it's torment. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and at the same time, we want to sort of get out of the presence of the Lord. And it's impossible. That's the, that's the struggle with the old man. So Psalms 139, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? Verse 8, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Listen to this. If I take the wings of the morning, the psalmist attempt to describe the speed of light. The wings of the morning are when the psalmist would see as the sun broke at dawn and the shafts of light would penetrate the darkness at such speed. He says, if I fly on the wings of the morning far away from you and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So it says, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down again. If you want an executive summary, I love executive summaries. I hate long emails. Those of you that know me, I hate reading long. Executive summary of what sin is like, uh, he paid the fare, and he went down. He paid the fare, and he went down. Sin always costs us. And the thing, if you're, if you're a little bit frugal, I like to use that word instead of cheap. If you're a little bit frugal, Jonah paid full fare for this trip. And only and got thrown off halfway across. So it's like he didn't even get to have the full experience of what he had to pay for. And then he goes down. It says down from the port, down to the port of Joppa from where he was at geographically. Down from the dock, down onto the ship. Down from the deck of the ship, down into the bilge or into the bottommost part of the ship. He paid the fare and he went down, which is what happens to us when we fight against God. Verse 4, but the Lord... This is what's so cool about the story. But God had a second chance for Jonah. He's going to bring the whole experience of the storm and the sea, not to punish Jonah, but to give Jonah a second chance. But the Lord, verse 4, sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Um, I love it when God nudges me to get me to do what he wants me to do. Like you're sitting here today, I don't know about you guys, sitting here with Wendy a lot of times in church, the Holy Spirit will speak through the word. And it'd be like a nudge, you know, this is, this is the way. But more often than not, God needs to bring a giant storm into my life or something a little bit more momentous because I don't respond to that nudge. 
But it says, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, giving Jonah a second chance, trying to minister to him and speak to him. Hebrews 12, 11 says, talking about this, Hebrews 12, 11 says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. If there's anything Jonah's going to need, his heart's so filled with hatred, he needs peace. And God wants to do that in Jonah, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. By it. So here we have the sailors uh, crying out to God. And look, at, look, at, look specifically at how they do it, because the word God there is in your Bible, it's small g, small o, small d. It says in verse 5, then the, when the mariners were afraid, and just so we're clear on this, the mariners in this passage have two levels of fear. They have Afraid level one and afraid level two. Now they're just at level one. The ship's breaking up. They're throwing the stuff overboard, but this is still level one fear because they've been here before. They've been in these kind of storms. He says, the mariners were afraid. Every man cried out to his God, that small g, small o, small d, to their multiple gods that they had, multiple deities. They're all crying out to whatever deity they had. And they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea. I grew up, my dad uh, lived on a boat at Shilshul when I was a teenager, about 14, 15, 16, for quite a few years. I grew up hanging out on the boat and being on Puget Sound. I never had a fear of the ocean. I've, I felt like it was safe. It wasn't. We could always see land. Until one time, my dad decided to cross to the Strait of Juan de Fuca, leaving out of either Port Angeles or Port Townsend. We had a smaller sailboat with an outboard motor. Probably shouldn't have tried that crossing. My dad, myself, my dad, and another 14 or 15-year-old friend of mine. And we got about halfway out, and my dad realized that we were not going to make it. And so he wanted to turn around, take down the sails, turn around with the outboard motor, fight against the wind, and get back to the other coast. And so, you know, he asked me, I mean, there were not a lot of choices. He was at the rudder. He said, I want you to go on, on the bow, tie yourself in on the way up, and then I want you to take the sail down and tie it up so we can turn around and we can get back. And so I did that. I'm climbing up there. I'm trying to stay tied in. At one point, I got tangled in the sheet or in the, um, in the sail. And a wave came over the top of the boat. And from my dad's perspective, when he looked, all he saw was the sails. And he thought I had washed overboard. I'm not sure he was more afraid that I washed overboard or that my mom was going to kill him when, I, when he got back into the dock. I'm not sure which one was more fearful. But I got back into the, into the back part of the boat where the, steer, the rudder was. And my friend, none of us were praying people. I mean, my friend might have been, but my dad and I were not, I did not grow up in a home where we ever prayed. I, the first time I ever prayed, I thought it was very different. But this guy was down below and he was praying and my dad heard him praying. And this is the way the sailors are at. They're at the point where they're praying to their various gods. They threw the cargo overboard to lighten the load. Last part of verse five though. But Jonah had gotten down into the lowest part of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. I've slept a lot in the bottom, in the lower part of my dad's sailboat. When the motor's off and the, the waves are lapping against the side, outside of the boat, you can feel the boat rocking. I've slept a lot like that. But this is not the case. Jonah's in the bottom of a ship, in the bilge where all the sour water has ended up from the boat. He's bouncing all over the place with this ship that's about ready to fall apart. And something to do with his heart being so filled with hatred so filled with rebellion, so full with this desire to get away from the presence of the Lord, he's catatonic. He's sleeping and he's bouncing all over in the hole. Verse 6, so the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. 
Um, as a pastor, I'm in a lot of meetings where we, we pray. And sometimes there'll be people in the meetings that I know are, are uncomfortable praying publicly. I don't call them out. No, you pray, right? I'm not going to do that. It's just not, I don't. This captain, not so much. Jonah's sound asleep and he's like, wake up and pray right now. So he's woken up, verse 7. They said to one another, come let us cast lots so we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Aren't you glad when you're on an airplane and you hit turbulence that this doesn't happen? <laughs> like, everybody doesn't get out into the aisles and it's like, okay, who made God mad that we have all this turbulence in the airplane? <laughs> this is just something that's going on during this season. And there are people that are superstitious, superstitious that way. There are people groups in the world today that are animistic, that believe that every sickness and everything is some, something to do with appeasing the gods. But God made it so that that lot, even though it was casting dice or whatever, it fell on Jonah. Cast lots. Whose trouble has come upon us? The lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8, then they said to him, please tell us. Then they threw all these questions at him. What do you do? What's your occupation? Where are you from? Verse 9, so he said to them, Jonah, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's very important that you look at that word in your Bible for Lord. It's not just a generic word for God. That's God's personal name. So, so when Jonah said this, he revealed to these sailors, I serve the God Jehovah or the God Yahweh, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God. There was a difference now for the sailors, and you're going to see the fear level of the sailors is now going to go to level two. And I would say it may be because they were afraid that when the ship was breaking apart, now, and they were afraid maybe somebody had made their God mad. Now Jonah has confessed that he made Jehovah mad. And now it says in verse 7, they cast lots to one another, uh, whose occupation, verse 9, so he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were level two, exceedingly afraid. And before we're too harsh on Jonah, I mean, here Jonah is saying, I fear God who made the sea. That's why I came out in this ship and put all your lives in danger. He's a hypocrite. Before we're too hard on Jonah, how often are we praying or singing or doing stuff? And we know that our hearts are hardened. We struggle with, with different things. So Jonah is obviously being a hypocrite here. He says, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And he said, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord, for he had told them. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And, and Jonah said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Second time we see Jonah to the point of really not even caring about life. That's how dead his heart is. That's how hardened his heart is. He says, throw me into the sea. And I see one thing that's really a bright note here. The best thing you can ever do when you're in a fight with your, with your wife or with your husband is say what Jonah said. It's because of me. He, he says it right out. He says, he says, this great tempest is because of me. I'm the problem. He admits that. But here's where he falls short. I'm the problem. But instead of saying, and the solution is, I'm sorry, I've been disobeying God Let's go back to um, Nineveh, and I'll do what God told me to do. He says, throw me in, in the water. My heart's so hard. I just want you to throw me in the water. 
So now there's a problem for the sailors. There's a problem for the sailors. Uh, verse 13, nevertheless, the men, the men just found out what the solution was. Throw Jonah in the water. What do the men do? Nevertheless, men are rowing harder. I mean, there are times in our lives when God is going to do something in our life. At this point in this story, God is going to have Jonah thrown off the ship. It says, you'll read, we'll read later in the verse, he prepared the great fish. The great fish is already prepared. This is going to happen, and no matter how hard they row, they can't fight against it. Now, there are times in our lives when God is doing something in our life, and as hard as we want to fight against it, we can't. The sailors are fighting. I don't, I don't know why they're fighting us. I mean, I don't want to see somebody drown. They don't, they're going to throw this guy in and watch him drown. Nobody wants to watch that. But also, they've got a clue. Hey, this is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. This, th he's made Yahweh mad, and now are we going to get in more trouble if we throw him in the water? Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out, and this is really interesting change. If you look at your Bible, they cried out not to small g, small o, small d. They cried out to capital L-O-R-D, which is the way it's written in the Bible to say Jehovah. They're crying out to, to Jonah's God now. And they said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Don't charge us with innocent blood for you, O Jehovah, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And, you know, you'd think they'd sort of settle down. The sailors would sort of settle down. They'd sort of go, okay, wow, that was, wow, that was wild. <laughs> Look what happens to the sailors. This is, really, this is really profound. Then the men, after the sea calmed down, feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. This is after it's all over and they're safe. They're like, this God, I want to surrender my life to this God. The first Bible study I ever taught, I'd been saved a very short period of time. I was asked to teach the kindergarten first grade class. And I was scared to death. The sermon was, peace be still. And I was like, I got to work on this, man. I got to work on this. I got to work on this. And it was the, the simple truth that, that Jesus has power over the waves and the sea. And that overwhelmed the sailors. So verse 17, and this is where uh, in the whole book of Jonah, there's a few verses that talk about the great fish. The story is not about the great fish. There's a few verses, and this is one of them. It's been interesting because Johnny is teaching, uh, Johnny Lopez is teaching chapter two next week. So him and I have been on the phone quite a bit talking about how to handle this and the different perspectives. Um, verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. After hearing the story of Jonah at Sunday school, a little girl repeated the story at school on Monday. Her teacher said it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human because even though it, has a very, it is a very large mammal, it has a very small throat. The little girl said, but, but how can that be? Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Irritated, the teacher reiterated that a whale could not swallow a human. It's physically impossible, she said. Undaunted, the little girl said, well, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. To this, the teacher said, what if Jonah went to hell? 
The little girl replied, then you ask him. That's a, that's a really old joke. How many times has that joke been told in the story of Jonah? You know, I read a bunch of, I listened to a bunch of sermons on this. And I read a bunch of uh, different podcasts. I would, I, one thing was really interesting. Skip Heitzig and Joe Foch are two pastors that I listen to a lot when, uh, how they handle passages. Both of those guys went into detail about stories of real life or ex- said to be real life events where people or dogs were swallowed by fish and were kept alive. I don't know if any of you guys caught Jimmy Kimmel a few weeks ago, but literally a few weeks ago, I mean, I don't know if Garrett chose this series because he was watching Jimmy Kimmel, but a few weeks ago, a lobster fisherman in Maine claims to have been not swallowed, but caught in the throat of a whale. And on Jimmy Kimmel, he tells this story of being picking up the lobster and then being hit, felt like he was hit by a truck, then feeling the water go past him and trying to figure out if he was in a shark or if he was in a whale. Then the guy that was in the boat on top of the water says he saw the guy shoot feet first back out of the water. And it's a convincing story that he was actually caught in this guy's, in this whale's throat. But for me, there's one other passage that really, there's not very many passages that talk about Jonah in the Bible. And this is Jesus' commentary on the book of Jonah. And from my perspective, you know, I don't need a YouTube video to validate my faith. God can do miracles. And so here's what, here's what Jesus said. I think we have it on the screen. Matthew chapter 12, and verse 39. One of the few other places we have a commentary on what happened in Jonah. Jesus speaking, Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The miracle of Jesus rising from the dead, that is the core and the centerpiece of our faith, that Jesus rose from the dead. For some reason... Jesus tied that to the story of Jonah. And that, that to me, speaks, speaks volumes. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to um, close with, not close, because I'm not ready to close, but I, there, I just thought I'd give you guys, a, I'd make you feel excited like we were getting there. <laughs> I'd like to share two things, kind of applications. One, I believe that one of the big issues for this book is Jonah's hatred in his heart. And I, I believe that we've gone through some period of time over the last months, year, maybe year and a half, two years, there's been a lot of hatred, a lot of hatred, and we're, we want people to hate the people we hate, and a lot of hatred, and I want to share five keys to loving your enemy. Maybe there's some hope and some, I think the story of Jonah encourages us loving our enemy, and then I want to share just a couple points on the fact that I believe God is sending us today, like he sent Jonah, he's sending us to bring the gospel to those around us that need the gospel. So quickly, I'm going to go over five keys to loving your enemy. Number one, love is a choice. I know you know this. I know anyone that's been married for a long time, love is a choice. It's not a feeling. Like my wife was sitting here at first service and I was kind of giving her a bad time. I said, I know she feels romantic feelings, mushy romantic feelings for me. And she just feels all these feelings. But there are times when she'll see me, I drool when I sleep, she'll see me, my head on the pillow, hair all messed up, a little bit of drool coming out, and she'll look at me, and I know she says, I choose to love that. (laughs) Amen? 
love, if you are in a marriage, love is not a feeling. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43, you have said that it was, and look at this. None of this is him telling us to have warm feelings for those that are enemies. It's just stuff you can do without feeling. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemy, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We can pray for them. Even in Fiddler on the Roof, when they were asked, is there a prayer for the czar? And, the, and the, the priest says, yes, may the Lord bless him and keep him far away from me. <laughs> There's, we, can pray for, we can pray for enemies. That's number one. Number two, consider Jesus' last words on the cross. I'll be back. No. <laughs> Jesus' last words on the cross were the opposite of I'm going to come back and you're going to pay for what you did. His last words on the cross... Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Killing me is, they're not killing me. They don't know what they're doing. What they really don't understand is who I am. The Ninevites that were so brutal, the Assyrian people, that, that's their warfare warrior mentality. Their really, real problem was they did not know the Lord. So number two, consider the words of Jesus on the cross. Number three, delegate fairness to God. This is the hardest one, I think, for most people because, you know, our kids, when they were little and they say, it's not fair. I don't know about you. Most of the time we said, get used to it. Life's not fair. And life is not fair, but when it's not fair against me, it's hard to let go. Delegate fairness to God. Romans 12, 19 says, beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Don't take that fairness thing and try to make it yourself, but rather give place to wrath for it is written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. So number one, love is a choice. Number two, consider Jesus' words on the cross. Number three, delegate fairness to God. Number four, this one makes it easier. Think of it if, as you're getting a really good deal. Okay, you, who likes a good deal? Who likes to pay the fare and get the whole trip and then accidentally get another half of a fare on a cruise on another day or something? Consider it a good deal. Look at Matthew 6, 14. It says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. We need a lot of forgiveness, amen? We, are, we, are, we have that in our heart. And lastly, think of inspiring stories of people who have loved their enemies. A movie came out a long time ago called The End of the Spear based on the true story of five missionaries who were speared to death by the Huarani people in Ecuador well, they were trying to do a, a contact work. It's a great story. I mean, it's a true story. They, would, they had this airplane. They figured out how to drop this little bag into this isolated place where the Huarani people lived that had not had contact with outside people. They gave little gifts, and they eventually flew their plane in on, into the middle of the jungle on a riverbed, and they had contact where they were making this contact with this people group, and something went wrong. And they speared all five missionaries. It was the beginning of one of the greatest missionary movements in history as that story got out. But these wives, uh, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and I think Nate Saint's mom, went back into that village. And for two years, they continued to preach the message of Jesus Christ. That is the message of the Bible, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies to God, he died for us. So lastly, I want to talk a little bit about um, we're sent. So that's, I think if our heart is filled with hatred and where Jonah was at, he couldn't deal with being sent. 
But I believe God has sent us. Each gospel in the New Testament has a version of the Great, Com- the Great Commission. The most quoted one is Matthew 28, where it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But from the beginning of the Bible and the choosing of Abraham, God was choosing a people who would be a voice and a voice piece to spread and invite the entire nations to personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a story about God calling people to himself and that he chooses to use us as being sent. Jonah was sent specifically. and We see all the challenge there. We have challenges in being sent. But I want to read the... I want to read... Uh, Great Commission, a different one of the Gospels that you maybe don't read so often. John 20, 21. Um, it's interesting, it's the year that we're in, 2021. I, I just realized that this morning. I mean, um, John 20, 21, Jesus said to them, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. You know, the context of that is that, verse 19, it says, In the same day, the day they discovered the empty tomb, at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus stood, came and stood in their midst and said to them, twice he said it, peace be with you. Thinking of all the hatred and all that, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side as this intimate moment with Jesus. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And that's where verse 20, 21 says, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. There's a really uh, really well-known missionary song that we, back years ago, sang. I never knew the history of it, though. It's called So Send I You, written by a 22-year-old girl who was a teacher in Toronto. There were no jobs in the city. They sent her to some mining camp way up in the middle of nowhere where there was um, no Christian church, no fellowship, and she wrote this song, which turned out to be one of the all-time great missionary hymns ever written by Margaret Clarkson, written in 1954. I'll read just a few of the stanzas. So send I you to bind the bruised and broken, or wandering souls to work, to weep, to wake, to bear the burdens of a world aweary. So send I you to suffer for my sake. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self-will resign, to labor long and love where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life and mine. So send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to to eyes made blind because they will not see, to spend though it be blood, to spend and spare not, So send I you to taste of Calvary. You know, God's calling us to, we have sent missionaries out from this church, Rich and Carol are in Azerbaijan. We've sent Kathy out. She's in Turkish Cyprus. We've sent missionaries out. We have so many wonderful programs where we're doing tutoring, where we're doing the community meal, where we're doing outreach to foster kids. My prayer for our church is that we see all this energy converted into seeing people come to know Jesus as their personal Savior. If that's something that's on your heart, next, tomorrow night at 6.30, some folks are meeting to pray in the fellowship hall to pray for God to save souls. And here's an encouragement. I'll bet for some of us, uh, that whole step of going out and sharing our faith is terrifying. But God 
is already at work in, in people's lives. The worship team can start getting ready to come up now as well. God's already at work in people's lives. A few weeks ago, I was swimming in the pool and um, lap swim, and there were four or five kids that were young high school or maybe young college kids that were playing in the pool at the end of the lap swim. Obviously, they did not know the rules of lap swim, which is you don't play in somebody's lane when they're doing lap swim. They're just kind of goofing around. They're throwing stuff around. They're having fun. And I'm getting ready to swim down there in my lane. And I had this thought, why don't you just give them your goggles and see, ask them if they want to use your goggles because it makes it much easier to swim. I don't know about you, but the, <laughs> I had that thought. The very next thought was, that's a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, like, that's not going to happen. First of all, we're not sharing goggles in the pool. This is not going to happen. And so anyway, I, I share that. I get down to the end of the pool. I swim my lap, and they're still kind of in and out of the lanes. There's one kid at the end of the lane, and I go to turn, take a breath to turn around. I kid you not, this kid turns to me, and he says, can I borrow your goggles? <laughs> and I, I looked at him. My eyes must have been this big around. I was like, you can, you can have my goggles. I mean... I think what God wants to communicate, he's working in people's lives. When he's sending Jonah, this whole 500,000 people repented, despite Jonah's craziness and his sinfulness. God's working. I mean, I, since that experience, at the, at, after that, we ended up at the end of the pool, and they had questions about, they said, weren't there two people that were crucified with Jesus on the cross? I shared that I was a pastor. We had this incredible theological discussion, by the way, blocking all the other people that were trying to do lap swim at the time. <laughs> so two times I've gone back to the pool, and last time I was there, I was like, I got to go, man. And they said, no, just sit on the pool and put your feet in the water. You know, is there such thing as a red-letter Bible? What is that? People are hungry for stuff, and we have the answer, just like Jonah had the answer. And as, as the worship team comes, I want to pray and just ask God if there's a response today to here am I, send me, or a response about maybe you feel like you're running from the Lord, or maybe there's a response just that there's been hatred in your heart and you want to get that right. Let me pray, and uh, maybe we'll have some response after the worship. Father, I pray that the, the things you want to do with your word, God, first of all, we thank you that you sometimes can just nudge us into the direction you want us to go. But Lord, we, we are grateful that you sometimes send a storm and you prepare something for us that's going to lead us into the place you want us to be. God, I, I know that your love for the people around us in our jobs or in our work or at, our, at the gym or wherever we are is so much greater than ours. And you're preparing hearts. Lord, it's like fruit that's ripe and ready to fall off the tree. And God... Yet somehow we turn the opposite direction because we're afraid of what people think of us or we just, we're afraid to share the gospel. Lord, I pray that you'd put in our hearts such a clarity of the gospel that the problem is that our sin separates us from you. A solution so clear, so simple, so sweet that you died on the cross to pay for our sins. And the decision, 1 John 1, 9, to as many as received him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. First John 1 John 1.12. Lord, help us to help people make that decision. In Jesus' name.